Everyone is looking for purpose, for a life that matters, and we want to be a church that helps people find that. This is the Collective Church Podcast from a life-giving and vibrant new church right here in London, Ontario. Here's this past week's message from our pastor, Tyler Fromm. Welcome to Collective Church. If we've never met before, my name is Tyler. I'm one of the lead pastors. Glad that you are with us. We've been in this series called Thorns and Thrones, and we're looking at pain. Today, I want to talk about the idea of pain of unmet expectations. The reality is we all have expectations, all of us. We have expectations of each other, We have expectations of ourselves. We have expectations of situations. We're about to do something that might be fun. We're expecting it's going to be amazing. We're expecting that something's going to be awful. Like maybe you're feeling that way about one of your family Christmas events, and you're like, oh, man, my uncle's going to go nutty, or my cousin, there's some tension, and you're expecting it's going to go sideways. And when it comes to God, we have expectations. All of us have expectations. We come to God with certain things, and we say, okay, God, I expect you to do this and be this, and and sometimes it's based in Scripture, and sometimes it's just things that we think ourselves. All of us have expectations about how he'll guide us, lead us, and show up in our lives. So what do we do when God doesn't meet our expectations? How do we respond when God doesn't meet us like we think he should, when he doesn't guide us like we think he should, when he doesn't lead us like we think he should. The truth is there are times that our will, the the, the will of our lives, that all that we want, that our will is aligned with God's will. And there's also times that our will is not aligned with God's will. So what do we do in those moments? What do we do when we expect God to go one way And instead, he leads us in a different way. How we respond to this, how we respond to this tension between our will and his will is generally a really good indicator of our spiritual maturity or immaturity. Let's pray, and then we'll dig in. God, Holy Spirit, come. God, speak louder than the voices, louder than the noise. God, for each one of us, we know that you see us, that you love us, and that you want to meet with us. Have your way. I need you, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so what do we do when God says no? Well, you're in luck because we have some examples in the Bible. In fact, we have the best one, Jesus. Jesus actually has moment, a moment where he is asking God for something and God says no. And I want us to look at this powerful moment in the book of Matthew, so if, if you're not familiar with the Bible, the Bible split up into two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all accounts of Jesus' life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And so there's different accounts from different verses. So I'm going to primarily be in Matthew, but then I'll, I'll, I'll hop a little bit around. But there's this powerful moment that's found in Matthew that I, I want us to look at, but I want to give you some context. I want to paint the picture. Okay, so anytime that we look at a passage of scripture, I want to make sure that we understand what's happening around. 
So imagine this. Jesus is with his 12 closest friends, called his disciples. They're the ones that he's incredibly close with, that he's invested tons of time and energy, blood, sweat, tears, all of it into them. 12 of them. Three of them he's especially close with. And he's just sat down with them and he said, you're all going to leave me. So imagine this. In your life, the people that you're absolutely closest with, and you know all of them are going are gonna to bail on you. All of them. And then you say to one of them, who's supposed to be one of your closest guys, the closest people, uh, and you say, hey, Peter, uh, you're going to deny me three times. Now, what's really fascinating is that their response is, they go, no way, Jesus. We would never do that to you. Now, that's a problem because Jesus isn't just human, he's also God. And so when Jesus says you're going to betray him, he's right, you aren't. But there's some interesting things even here. One, I think about the humanity of Jesus. Jesus is fully God and fully human. And sometimes, depending on our tradition, we err one side or the other. We go, well, I'm pretty sure he's just mostly God, but the human part I don't know, I guess so, he looked like a human. No, fully, fully God, fully human. Imagine as a human being that the people that you've invested three years in, you know all of them are gonna bail on you. Imagine what that would feel like. Imagine if you knew you were about to do the hardest thing you've ever done and your people that are supposed to be your closest support are gonna bail on you and one is gonna deny you three times. And to your face, they're like, no, we would never do that. Just imagine that moment. Now, there's also a side of it, too, that I think about if I put myself in the place of the disciples, I think I've been in this place where I go, God, I'd never do that. And it's important that we recognize that sometimes we overpromise and underdeliver. Maybe just a lesson for those of us that speak first, think after, to think about what we say before we overpromise and underdeliver. Because his disciples are like, we'd never deny you. Peter's like, I'll never deny you. I'll die for you. Which ends up becoming true. And so all of that frames up this passage in Matthew 26, verse 36 to 38. Matthew 26, 36 to 38. Then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane. And he said, sit here while I go over to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. I don't know if you've seen it lately, but there's a, a social media campaign and a campaign online that is all around this idea of he gets us. That this idea that Jesus gets us, and it's intended to be evangelistic, to share with people that don't know about Jesus, that Jesus actually gets us. That he understands the human condition, that he understands the challenges of, of broken relationships and unmet expectations and pain in life. He gets us. And even here we are reminded that Jesus does in fact get us. 
that Jesus is not distant and lofty. One of the things that is so significant and distinct about the Christian faith is that we don't have to work harder to get to God. God came to us, became flesh, human being, and walked through all the difficulties of life and then made a way for us. He gets us. And so we read this passage and we're confronted with this reality. He goes to pray and he actually becomes anguished and distressed. The Gospel of Luke in another account actually says that he prays with such intensity that he begins to to sweat out blood. Like that is intense. That is anguish. That is distress. And so if you're ever wondering, does Jesus understand the pain that I'm going through? Let me tell you a hundred times yes. And so he says, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He's feeling here every bit of the pain. He's feeling grief. And he even says, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Now, some of us say that. You're killing me, right? Oh, man, it's the worst. I was was dying. And you're like, yeah, okay. Jesus is not exaggerating here. Death is on the other side of all the pain and anguish that he's experiencing. And I just want us to continue to remind ourselves that God is, or that Jesus is fully God and fully human, that he understands what it's like. This is the idea of what's called incarnation, And he's feeling every bit of it to the point of death. This is horrific. This is difficult. And in verse 39, he went on a little farther and he bowed with his face to the ground praying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. So what's Jesus' first response when he's in agony, distress, and anguish? It's prayer. His first response when he is feeling anguish to the point of death is to pray. And not just prayer by himself. This is important for us to recognize. He's not just praying by himself. He invites his disciples, his community, to pray with him. He brought them with him and he invites them to pray. He's struggling and he invites his community, even though he knows they're going to betray him, in and he asks them to be praying as well. And notice how he prays. How he prays is so significant. It says that he, it says that he bowed with his face to the ground. Like this is not like, hey, God, help me, please. You know, I'm really struggling or whatever. This is like all the way to the ground where you're going, please help me. This is getting low. This is the ultimate sign of humility and surrender. And I want you to notice what he prays. My father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. And you know what's really fascinating? That same prayer, if you read the whole chapter, you'll see it. He actually prays it three times. He doesn't just one time go, Um, God, if you could just remove this from me, that'd be great, and then leaves it. He prays three times, God, please, and I pray again, please. Prays, and and he asks multiple times for God to take this away from him. He asks God right here to change his circumstance, to change what he has to go through. 
God, can't, isn't there a different way? Can't you choose something different? I don't know about you, but I prayed this prayer. I prayed the prayer. I'm like, God, it's not supposed to be this hard. It's supposed to go more simply than this. Why is this so difficult? Why do I feel all that I feel? Why is it like this? Why are people like this? Why am I like this? Why is my circumstance like this? I said yes to you. Why is it costing me all of this? And honestly, there are these moments that our prayer is just, God, just take it away from me. Just make it better. Like it's a little bit like when our kids hurt themselves. We just had it where Ava hurt herself, and when they're little, it's like they just come over, and they're like, just kiss it better. Like, that's the solution. And so you kiss it, and they're like, now I feel great. It's almost like we just want God to just do something. I don't care. Just do anything. Take it away. Just make it better. Just make me feel fine. I just, I want to avoid what I'm feeling. This discomfort is uncomfortable. I don't want to feel this. But look how Jesus prays. He prays that. My Father, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet... I want your will to be done, not mine. God, I I want you to take all this pain away from me, but I want your will to be done, not mine. This is how Jesus prays, and this, just this small little section has so much theological reality or truth, but also experiential reality for us, because you go, this is where many of us find ourselves. Maybe right now, or we have in the past, or we will definitely in the future. This moment between God, take it away from me, and not your will, not my will, but your will be done. God, I want it my way. I want it my way, but I want your way. Some of us are in this tension right now, wrestling with this. We come face to face with this question and reality. What? What am I going to surrender to? Is this my will? Do I want my will in my life? Do I want to be in control of everything or do I want his will? Do I want my way of life or do I want his way of life? And I want to be honest with all of you. All of us have areas where this is hardest. All of us have areas of confrontation and conviction that we go, that's, that's hard in this spot. And, and we can come to Jesus and we can say, Jesus, I'm good with, I'm good with some of the things that you have, but, but there's some tension that I'm, I don't know how to reconcile. Like we can go, Jesus, I'm good with love. I'm good with this idea of love. I, I love that you, that you love me. I, I love that. I love being able to love my family. I love being able to love my friends. I don't know how I feel about loving my enemies. Have you met them? Have you been around them? Listen, I know you say love people, and then you say love your enemies. I don't know, because I don't know if you understand what my enemies are like or what the people, they're so hard to love. Yeah, that's kind of the point. Or I want to define love like you define love, and Jesus defines love as laying down your life for those around you. And you go, whoa, 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 whoa. That's like a, seems a little extreme. Can I just say, hey, love you. See you later, man. No. Or maybe it's with generosity. And you go, I love that God is generous to me. I love that he uses people to bless me. I love that. I don't know how I feel about laying down my life and sacrificing 
because I want stuff. And, and I like receiving stuff. I don't know how great I feel about giving. Or it's like, yeah, I'll give some, but whoa, you're asking for a lot here. And we have this tension between our way and his way, our will and his will. What about it? Surrender. You go, I love this idea of surrender. I surrender to you. You are my savior. But what do you do when he says, I also need to be your Lord? And you don't just surrender little things. You surrender all of it, including areas of sexuality and relationships. And you go, okay, I'm giving all of it to you. And you're like, I want to give it all to you. But if you could just not touch some of this stuff, that'd be great. And he goes, no, I want all of it. All of it needs to come before me. What about this of growth? Like all, many of us are like, I love the idea of growing. I want to grow until he breaks us. And you're like, oh, I don't, I don't want this kind of growth. I don't think I want it that badly. He's like, I need, to, I need to break you in order to remake you. And you go, oh, can we avoid that part? I don't like how you do this. All of us have these areas of tension and challenge and, and ways that we go, am I following my way or his way? My will or his will? And I just want to tell those of us that would call ourselves followers of the way of Jesus, those of us that have surrendered our life to Jesus, we don't just get to pray the first part of Jesus' prayer. We don't just get to say, Father, take this away from me. We also are invited to pray the second part. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. And I want you to notice even here, consider, consider the reality of Jesus hearing no from God, that in this, we would not be where we are if God would have said yes. Like the implications of God's no here literally means life and death for us. This is not just some little thing where you go, well, it doesn't matter. It's, it's a huge deal. God says no to Jesus because there was a better plan. There was a plan for life from death. And in the same way that God said no to Jesus, I want to remind you that when God says no to you, it is not to restrict you. He's not looking, going, you know what, I just want it to, I want it to hurt. I want you to suffer. No, he's looking and he's saying, I have a better plan for you and flourishing that actually looks different. Will you trust me? Will you surrender to me? Can I show you what real freedom is? And it's going to cost you a bit, but I promise you in the end it's worth it. What do you do when God says no to you? How do you respond when God says no? When, when God doesn't answer your prayer for your will to be done, but instead his will is done, how do you respond? Do you choose trust? Do you choose surrender? Or do you resist it and you fight it and you struggle with it? Because this moment where we come face to face with where our way and his way diverge. They become moments that either are catalysts for us to grow closer to him and deepen our surrender, or they become catalysts for us to distance ourselves more and more and go, I don't know if I can really trust you. 
I want you to pay attention to how you generally respond in your life. How, how do I respond when I read something in the Bible and it challenges my way of thinking? It causes me to go, I don't know that I want to do that, and yet Jesus is saying it, and yet the, the scriptures are saying it. I, I don't know how to reconcile those things. Do you find yourself moving away from God or moving towards God? And this idea of, of reconciling this, this concept of my will or his will is incredibly significant. And I wanted to speak to you culturally why it is so significant. There is an author named Charles Taylor. He has this uh, really great book that is really hard to read. There's another guy that wrote a summary, but he's talking all about culture and culture becoming more secular. And that's not just like Christian or not. That's just removing God from any reality, trying to become a culture that removes God. And what he says that I think is so significant is that he says we move from a culture that values authority to a culture that only values authenticity. So this culture from going authority is like my parents might actually know more than me and try to say things to help me or, or you know, the government can be trusted to help me to, to become some, someone that's better and a, a better citizen for the, the, the country. But beyond that, it's actually going at some level, God actually can tell me how to live. And the culture of authenticity goes, no, 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 I get to tell me how to live, how I feel. What I think, that's the number one priority. So God's authority is good as long as it's surrendered, as long as I like what he says. That's not how this works. And if we pay attention, honestly, we see a lot of this. Maybe even right now I'm poking on some buttons and you're like, ooh, man, I don't like this. Because we swim in this culture. We swim in this idea that I get to tell me how to live in every way. And if Jesus' words line up with that, great. I can kind of pick and choose. But other the other stuff, I'm like, I don't really want to do that. But that is not following the way of Jesus. And this idea of moving away from authority to authenticity actually is having a profound negative impact on humanity. There is tons and tons of research that's saying it. One of which is saying that one of the ways that we get rid of uh, institutional anxiety, so anxiety through all people, is through institutions. It's through authority and structures. Now, I recognize there are lots of broken ones, but the, the goal of larger institutions is meant to settle some of the anxiety that everyone feels of going, I can trust other people. What's happened is that's been flipped, and now suddenly we are each responsible for everything, defining how we live, everything that we do. We are all responsible, and we can't handle it. It crushes us. And so we see how this way of living is, is not, just, not just antithetical to Jesus, but actually harmful for us. And I think to some degree, whether it's inside the church or outside, I think all of us, if we're not careful, we lose sight of the one, of, of God who created everything and who actually lays out a life of flourishing for us, that looks at us and goes, I have a better plan for you. I have a way of life that will help you. And instead, we take it, the responsibility into our own hands and we all take it from here. And I just want to let you know, in the context of all of that, the devil is having a heyday, sowing discord and, and, and speaking lies and causing significant damage in the meantime. There's a book called Live No Lies by someone named John Mark Comer. I mentioned him last week, and I would highly recommend it. I think that it's incredibly helpful. 
And in that, John Mark is, is talking about live no lies. He's talking about three enemies of the soul. And he says this. He says, his working theory of the devil's strategy is deceitful ideas that play to disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. So on one hand, we have God's will. And we don't always know all the parts. If, if you're ever wondering, like, I don't know what God is up to, me too. You look at certain things and you go, I don't know what you're up to, but there is this underlying part for us that follow Jesus that we say, I want and I'm willing to trust you, even when I don't understand it. So on one hand, we have that. On the opposite side, we have exactly what John Mark Homer is talking about. Deceitful ideas that play to disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. And some of the ideas are not, harm, or are not all bad. It's like half-truths. But if you think about if you're going in a direction, if you're just five degrees off, you end up way out of whack. You end up in a completely different direction. And so there are desires that we have in our heart that God put there. But when they're out of order and they're not surrendered to God, they end up harming us. And the truth is for all of us, some of us that are following the way of Jesus, that there are ways that we are being shaped not by Jesus, but by the world around us, the people around us, and our enemy, the devil. And we just don't pay attention to how much that is shaping us. We're not paying careful attention to who we're becoming and who's shaping us and, and whether that looks more and more like Jesus or it looks like something different. Our desires are less shaped by seeking and trusting God's will. And instead, we organize our life around things that aren't in alignment but are normalized in culture. And I say all of this, all of this, because I just, I want us to become people that are actually formed by Jesus in every area of our life. Like, I want us, I recognize that all of us are in the same place. Some of us have limited or no church experience. Some of us have lots. Some of us have positive. Some of us have negative. But at the end of the day, when I stand before God, which I will, I want to know that I've done everything that I can to help point people to Jesus. And I recognize that we are being formed in all ways and many of which we don't pay attention to. And, and my desire and God's call on my life is to help us to be counterformed into the image of Jesus. Recognizing that that steps on toes and challenges areas and confronts areas where we have settled for less. I want to be part of that catalytic work of counterformation. I want us to be shaped by the good news of Jesus and its implications in our life. The good news of the gospel of Jesus, this is super short and condensed, but it's that you're more broken than you know and yet more loved than you could imagine. You're more broken than you know and yet more love than you might imagine. You don't get to look at your life and go, yeah, I think I'm pretty good. No, there's a lot of brokenness in there, and yet God sees you and he loves you. So much so that Jesus died on a cross, lived a perfect, after living a perfect life, and he rose again to restore the relationship between you and God. And that's good news. That's the message of Jesus. And the problem is that for some of us, we go, that's all that it is. But there's not just good news, there's implications of that good news. 
The challenge is that when you actually accept this good news, when you live in light of what God has done for you through Jesus, you then also must die. You must die. Jesus dies for us, and then the invitation is now we die with him. And we die to ourselves, and we die to our ideas, and we die to our plans, and we die to our desires, and we choose his way. We say, I don't want my will to be done, God. I want your will to be done. Do you see how significant this is? Do you see how significant this this shapes and it confronts every area of our life? The list that I gave earlier is not exhaustive. What's the area for you that that's a struggle? That you go, oh, okay, I I want your way, but maybe not in this way. And he says, yeah, that's where we need to work. He dies for us, and then we die with him. And I recognize that that this process is not just a one-time thing. And I think some of us, maybe that has been a reality. We're like, well, I had that one day that I gave my life to Jesus, and I I said, I I want life in you. I'm surrendering my life. But this dying to ourself is every single day putting to death that which does not look like Jesus. That is a hard process. This is why community is so essential because we're like, ah, oh, I think I'm doing pretty well. And then there's some other stuff that's like creeping up and you go, hmm, what about that stuff? And you go, it's this ongoing process of surrendering and dying to ourselves to become more and more like Jesus. And my desire is that we would do that as a community. Like, I just want to be really, really clear that my authority is not somehow just in me or my education or my experience. My authority is found in in God's words. And I'm reading his words and I'm going, it's confronting me. Like, how do I do that? And what does that look like? And every single day, Jesus is saying, do you trust me or trust you? Do you want your will or mine? Do you want your way or mine? And, And honestly... One of the most heartbreaking things for me from a pastoral perspective is when people hit a point and they go, "Mm, I'm going to settle for less than God's best. It breaks my heart because I go, I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. I know there are moments that you're just going, man, you want more of me. But I also know the more that he does, the more that he does in us, the more that he breaks in us, the more that he's going to use us and he's going to redeem that. And I've seen it in my own life. And so when people go, I just want to avoid that, it makes me sad. And I I want to just acknowledge, I know that's hard. I know it's hard to look at areas in your life and go, this is out of whack, this is not right. But I also want to encourage you, don't give up. Don't give up. Jesus actually says this in John 16, 33. I've told you all of this. So that you may have peace in me. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows. But take heart. Because I have overcome the world. Trials and sorrows. Many trials and sorrows. Jesus doesn't go, eh, you know I'd have a bad day every once in a while. He's going, you'll have many trials and sorrows. It will not be easy to follow Jesus. There's a reality in that, that the call of Jesus for our life is not a life of ease. It's a life that matters. And so Jesus is up front. He's saying this is going to be difficult, but 
take heart. And what he says earlier is he's telling all of us this so that we might have peace in me. Our peace is not in our circumstances. It's not in the external things. Our peace is in a person. His name is Jesus. He conquered death so that we might live. Our peace is in someone who endured all the things that we endure and so much more and yet lived a perfect sinless life to restore us to the very person that we're desperate for a relationship with. Our peace is in a person. His name is Jesus. And take heart because he's overcome the world. That nothing they could do was enough. That nothing could take him away. That nothing could steal what his plan and what God's plan was for his life. And so we circle back to Jesus' prayer in Matthew. My Father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Jesus feels the weight of what's to come. He asks God to remove it, but then he realigns his will with God's. I want to let you know that Jesus does, in fact, give us permission to ask God to remove our pain. That Jesus does not ask us just to grin and fake smile and, and just pretend like it's fine. He actually says, he's actually modeling that we can come to God and say, take it away from me. I don't want this. See, there's something significant even in that in understanding that God our Father actually wants our real feelings, our real thoughts. He doesn't just want us to come and say, God, I adore you, kind of, and whatever. Like, he's actually going, bring all that you have to me. He gives us permission to ask God to remove it, to say, I don't want this anymore. But he does not give us permission beyond that to choose our own way instead of his. We can bring all that we have, all our requests, and then ultimately we are invited to pray, God, I I don't want my will. I want your will. And maybe that prayer is with 10% faith. Maybe it's with 1% faith. Maybe it's with 0.0000001% faith. And it's like all you have where you go, I, I don't know how much I believe this, but I'm, I'm willing to take a step. I'm willing to trust you again. I want to be really honest with you that the cost of following Jesus is total. It's complete. But I also want to be honest that the alternative is winning in all the things that don't matter. And so we can follow Jesus and lay down our life or we can... We can live in a way that we win in everything that doesn't matter and lose it all in the process. Jesus actually says in Mark 8, verse 35 to 36, if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul. This is Jesus speaking. These aren't Tyler's words. He's telling us up front, if we choose to try to hold on to our life, hang on to our life, in the end, we will lose it. But if we give everything up to him, then we save it. If we give all of it up to him up front, then he redeems it and he uses it. How many of us find ourselves in this tension even right now? 
this tension of trying to hold on to our will and our way and our thinking and our desires and heading toward this place where we are actually winning in the wrong ways and we end up losing that which actually doesn't matter and losing all the things that do matter all while we think we're trying to win right now. How many of us find ourselves trying to win in the wrong ways? And so I want to just, I want to create some space. I want to create some space where we, we honestly go before God and ask him. Like, what do you do? I want you to even think and reflect right now. What do you do when God doesn't meet your expectations? What do you do when you come face to face with something in scripture and it confronts you and it challenges you? Do you lean in and go, God, I'm willing to trust you again? Or do you say, I'm just going to pretend like that doesn't exist? Or, you know what, Jesus, I'm willing to follow you to this point. But if what you're asking of me is complete, I'd rather hang out in the shallow end. I don't want to go in the deep end. Because I'm afraid that you're going to ask me to go in under my head. And what if I can't do it? And I just want to say to any of you that find yourself in that tension that we as a church, that Lee and I, that we want more for you than that. That we want complete and total surrender day by day dying to yourself because we believe that that is the way of life. Jesus says it. I've lived it. I don't always enjoy it. And yet I know it to be true. So what do you do when God says no? And I'm not talking about unanswered prayer. I'm talking about direction of your life. What do you do when God says, don't go there, don't do that, don't live like that, time to correct, how do you respond? See, we often pray in in comparison to Jesus' prayer. Not your will, but mine be done. We wouldn't be honest about that, but it is how we're living. We wouldn't necessarily tell everyone, this is how I'm living, but, but that's what you see in your life. You're saying, God, I, I love you, but not your will. My will be done. Jesus is facing death on a cross for us. He lays down his life and surrenders to God's will for us. And he invites us to do the same. Maybe you're in here and you've never made the decision to follow Jesus. You've never surrendered your life. Or maybe there's a moment even right now where you're sensing, I need to, I need to renew that vow, that commitment to following Jesus through hell or high water, no matter what it costs me because it is where life can be found. Maybe that's where you're at. And if, if that's you, I want to encourage you, let someone know. Let one of us know. Fill out a connect card and let us know. We don't want you to do it by yourself. If you're finding yourself at a pivotal moment in your spiritual growth and life, we want to help. But for those of us in the room that are following the way of Jesus, I want to cause you to consider, I want to encourage you to consider right now three different things. What's the area in my life that I haven't died to myself? Where is my will out of alignment with God's will? And what is God asking me to do about it? What's the area in my life that, you have, that I haven't died to myself? Where is my will out of alignment with God's will? 
And what is he asking me to do about it? Lee and I have three overseers, three pastors outside of Collective and their wives that that we're responsible to, that are also responsible for us. And one of them, his name's Steve. Maybe if you've been around, you listen to him speak. And I love Steve because Steve has years and years of experience and has gone through the difficult things, has a great marriage, kids that love Jesus. But he shared this, this perspective with me one time where he said, you don't really know what's in someone until you say no to them. You don't know. So from a pastoral perspective or just a human perspective, we don't know what's in someone until we say no. And sometimes the person goes, you're right, okay, thank you. And other times something rises up in them and you go, ooh, what's that? And that is so true in our relationship with God. That when God says no, it actually confronts and identifies where we are mature or where we are immature. And so what's in you? What's the area in your life that you haven't died to yourself? Where is your will out of alignment with God's will? And most importantly, what is he asking you to do about it? We do not want to become the kind of community that learns more head knowledge and then doesn't actually do anything with it. We want to come to him and let it transform our life and take the next step. I want to invite you to stand up with me for a moment. And I want us to pray a simple prayer if you would like to. You could close your eyes right now. And you can repeat after me. God, let's hear it. Repeat after me. God, not my will, but your will be done. I want to pray for us. God, I pray that in this moment that you would identify areas where we, we need you, where you are speaking to us, where you're trying to get our attention. You give us courage to surrender that to you. God, if there's wounding that's coming up, if there's stuff that's rising up, even if, you've, if someone here has heard something from me and it's causing tension, would you be the one that speaks directly to them? Because, God, I know that it's you that is guiding and leading, that you are the one who convicts of sin, that you are also the one who comforts. God, guide each one of us. We love you. We trust you. Even if it's with 0.0001% of our heart, God, help us to take the next step. God, have your way. We need you. Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like more information on Collective Church, find us on social media at This Is Collective Church or reach us on our website, collectivechurch.ca. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you Sunday.